Welcome to Lips on Life. I'm your host, Jessica Lips, and I'm pleased to welcome Jeff Lieberman as my next guest. Jeff is an award-winning journalist, producer, and documentary filmmaker. He is the founder of Re-Emerging Films and the force behind the new documentary, The Amazing Nina Simone. Jeff's previous film, Re-Emerging, The Jews of Nigeria, opened in 2013. In addition to films, Jeff's company regularly produces documentary programming for Coca-Cola, Walt Disney Films, and Entertainment Tonight, among other entities. Jeff, it's great having you today. Thanks for being here. Uh, Thanks for having me, Jess. It's great to be here. You recently came to my attention because of the press surrounding the casting controversy for the soon-to-be-released feature film Nina and an article you penned for The Hollywood Reporter about this topic. We're going to get there. But first, because this interview series is about interesting people who are living their dreams, I want to spend some time getting to know you and your background and learning about how you came to make this documentary. As The Amazing Nina Simone, which I saw the other day and it's fabulous, as it chronicles the events in Nina's life, starting with her birth, I want to also understand your history. So let's start at the beginning. Where were you born and where did you grow up? (laughs) Um, Well, I'm a proud Canadian. I uh, grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia. You know, my family ended up coming there from um, other parts of Canada and originally from Russia before that. Um, But I grew up there and that's sort of where I got my foundation. And I was always sort of a New Yorker at heart, too. So uh, I ended up in New York. Were you here for college in New York or did you come after you graduated? I always knew that I wanted to work in film or television. And um, I studied at Ryerson University in Toronto. And that was sort of my first step towards um, getting closer to New York or just Hollywood or the dreams that I had about being uh, a television producer, journalist or filmmaker. And so I spent four years in Toronto, a couple of summers in between in London and San Diego and trying to intern in different places. I attended a conference in my final year, a television conference, a news conference in uh, the States. And I met a really cool producer from CNN there. I ended up uh, writing to that producer afterwards and saying, how much I wanted to go uh, work for her and for the correspondent, uh, Maria Inahosa, um, who were sort of the New York beat. And uh, I ended up coming to New York on that internship with CNN. It was right when the millennium was happening. I was in Times Square with a press pass walking around. I was like 20 and living my like best life. Um, and so that sort of started my first chapter in New York. And I ended up moving here right after graduation. What great training. What happened after the internship? Did you stay on at CNN or did you go elsewhere? Um, I, you know, I came back um, right after graduation. Actually, I didn't even stay for my graduation ceremony. I wasn't, (laughs) I was too eager to like get out in the working world. Um, And CNN had offered me a job, but as a Canadian, I hadn't, I didn't have papers to work in the U.S. It was, it was a big to-do for CNN to offer this job to me as like a junior, like lowest level person, and they weren't going to sponsor me. Um, so I really was beating my head against the wall trying to figure out how I could do this, and ultimately it didn't, it didn't work, and I was heartbroken and crushed, and. Um, 
I applied for countless other jobs and still I had a job offer from CBS and I just kept having the same problem. And I was like, I, I grew up like half an hour from the American border, but I just did not have the, the working papers. And um, after about eight months of just sort of floating um, and trying to make it work, I, I had to go back home and, and, and sort of rethink my plan. And um, I ended up like teaching English for a little while, working at a pizza shop. A pizza shop? <laughs> yeah. You know, it was, just, it was just one of those things where you've graduated from college and you're like, where am I going? Like, I have no job prospects. Um, and I really thought, oh, I'll, I'll live in Vancouver and I'll try and work in media there. And it was just very difficult. Um, and I sort of knew that I needed to intern again. And my grand sort of strategic plan, it was to go uh, do this program in L.A. at UCLA, which was a producing program. And I sort of needed $10,000 for this program. And I was like poor. And my parents were like kind of <laughs> not so sure that this was the best idea. Um, and I was teaching these Korean kids in Vancouver English, you know, as sort of like this part-time job. And they were all like, you should really go to Korea and teach English. Like, you'll make so much more money there. And suddenly I started like calculating things and I was like, you know, if I go to Korea for four months and make enough money in that four months, I could afford to go do this program in UCLA. And so that's what I ended up doing. And so I went to Korea, um, signed a year-long contract, had to leave in the middle of the night because <laughs> I really only could be there for four months and they insisted on you signing this year-long contract. So a friend and I just sort of like hightailed it out of the country in the middle of the night. And so you went to LA for a one-year-long program? Um, less than that. It was it was about a four-month-long program, um, which was really tremendous. It was like all these interesting people from all over the world came together to sort of study with all these different people who worked in the industry. The group of us really formed this like unique bond, and a lot of us got jobs out of it. And I ended up working for this production company for many years, and we produced um, the making of movies, the documentaries on the the backstory of movies that you'll see on DVDs. I was basically hired as an assistant, but I um, ended up becoming a producer and going to all these different film sets and interviewing the directors and the casts and the filmmakers and the production crews behind, um, you know, Charlie and the Chaka Factory and Troy and iRobot. It was really an awesome experience and it was great probably the best training I had in terms of like interviewing and shooting and editing and running a company and, um, you know, just sort of seeing how Hollywood works too. And, and that job became four or five years. Yeah. And was that in LA? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And what happened after the four to five years? <laughs> well, in that process, I got my green card, which was you know, a big step. And I think at the end of it, I, at the end of four or five years in LA, I just sort of realized that New York was really where my heart was. And I kind of was ready for an intellectual challenge. And I thought the news and journalism world was truly where I wanted to be, which was seemingly New York. I'd also gone on this trip to Nigeria, which you mentioned, and started working on this film about Jews in Nigeria while I was in LA. That was in the process, and I had pretty much gotten to a rough cut stage, or, or maybe a third or fourth cut, and was ready to move to New York and sort of finish it here. Were you simultaneously working on the edits of this film and working a full-time job, or were you only focused on the film? Since I got to New York eight years ago, I've been essentially working freelance or part-time or... Uh, for clients. So I was never 
committed, committed to a full-time job, which was nice. So I was able to do that kind of work and work on uh, my film at the same time. And it, it worked nicely together. Tell us about your newest film, The Amazing Nina Simone. How did it come about? Why Nina Simone? Well, that idea had been rolling around in my head for quite a while. Um, I fell in love with Nina when I was in high school. I got into jazz music, and um, I got really into Ella Fitzgerald, and that led to sort of buying um, different albums that were sort of compilation CDs. So I I got into Nina and and just really loved her, and it just led me to explore more and more of her music. And um, in college, I think I really got into her more and started like really trying to figure out who she was and what she was trying to say. And this was before YouTube and before Wikipedia and before like all these resources online could tell you everything you needed to know. So I was really discovering her through the recordings, which is a really exciting process. Um, There wasn't a lot of books on her. There still isn't a lot of books on her. Why? Um, She's just one of those strange... creatures who never really made it to the top of like the popular music. So, you know, she's not an Aretha Franklin. She's not a Diana Ross. She's not a Dionne Warwick, where there's been countless magazine articles and profiles. And um, she was really sort of more cult. That sort of prevented her from being written about later on in biographies and that kind of thing. So now there's, Nina wrote her own autobiography, and then there's a really great book called Princess Noir, which is a very comprehensive book by Nadine Cahotis. Once I discovered these two books that I just mentioned, I discovered that Nina had this whole amazing history that I felt like nobody really knows. I didn't know it. And I was a big Nina Simone fan. And maybe if you grew up in the 60s, you might know some of it. But there was a whole history that I feel like has been left out of um, the larger story of Nina Simone. And so once I read uh, these elements of her life, including the fact that she was a classical pianist as a child in this like small southern town, segregated town, where most of the black children were, you know, going to be domestics. And then Nina has this whole um, amazing history in the civil rights movement and not really being a jazz artist, but being labeled a jazz artist. So there's all these unanswered questions and amazing history to Nina that I thought was ripe for a documentary film. And that idea was in my head for quite a while. And, you know, the biopic about Nina that you mentioned at the beginning was something that I had heard about when I started thinking about doing the documentary. And I was horrified by um, the things that I had been told about that film from the very beginning. And at a screening of Reemerging, people would say, well, what are you going to do next? And as I started saying, I think I'm going to try and do a documentary on Nina Simone. And I was like, if I put it out in the universe, maybe it'll start happening, right? I like uh, it. <laughs> so somebody came up to me afterwards and said, um, have you read the script for Nina? And um, what did you think of it? I was like, no, I haven't read it. And they're like, I'm going to send it to you. And I'll go to my grave with who this person was. Um, but I thought, um, how fortunate to be able to to read the script and, and get a sense of what this production was going to say about Nina. And I, I sat down and read the script one day and I was like, this is not going to happen. This is not this is not how Nina Simone is going to be remembered. Like, this is, this can't happen. Like, 
the sensationalized, overdramatic, um, love interest, conventional story of Nina Simone in her final decade of her life. That's how we're going to remember Nina Simone. It's, it's, it was so insulting and so horrific to me that um, I was like, okay, this documentary needs to happen more than ever because when this film comes out, people need to know the true story and the counter narrative. And um, I thought, you know, I, I hate to um, impinge on anyone's creative or artistic license, but when it comes to someone's actual life story, um, it really sort of bothered me that like, for someone to try and tell this um, overly sensationalized story about a woman who was ill and not not being taken care of at the last part of her life, um, and and not focus on her amazing history in the civil rights movement and all these beautiful albums that she made in the 1960s, these protest songs and these love songs and these jazz songs and R&B and, um, you know, these truly authentic, unique, um, uh, untouched by, like, electronics or, you know, any of this... Um, to focus on her mental illness and the worst part of it was just so horrific to me that the activist in me um, felt like there was a, a more compelling reason to really uh, go f forward with this project. And I thought, okay, let me go at least experience what it's like to be in Nina's hometown and, um, and get a sense of like whether this project is possible or what exists in this town and who I can talk to. And so I contacted a gentleman there, Chris Armbrest, who um, was really a big, big figure in maintaining Nina's, Nina's memory in Tryon. And he's like, yes, please come. And I'll tour you around the town and we'll meet and whatever. Anyways, I got to Tryon, met Chris, um, the statue that you see in the film of Nina that's sitting in the town plaza in this tiny little town that's three blocks long. And here's this gigantic statue of Nina Simone that Chris Armbrust was really responsible for pushing through. Um, I met him there and he said to me when I arrived, he's like, I've lined up interviews for you with about six or seven people who grew up with Nina and you've got to be kidding <laughs> no it's a sign that it was meant to be yeah i said to him you know i i haven't decided i'm making this film yet i'm just here like as a fan to like experience nina's town and he's like no jeff you've got to do these interviews these people will not be here forever this is our chance to get it on tape you've got your camera here yes you've you've got to do them and i was like okay and until you, no one had interviewed these people? No. or it had, No one? Not PBS? Not NPR? Nobody. What's going on? And now all of a sudden, here we are, and we have three Nina Simone films at the same time, right? It's yes. the Nina film that's coming out, your documentary, and there's a third documentary that's been shown on Netflix. So where did the Netflix one come from in the timeline? So um, right after I came back from Tryon with these amazing interviews with the people that basically formed the first chapter of the film. And I love that you said nobody's interviewed them. I'm like, nobody still has interviewed them. I'm the only one who's like interviewed, um, you know, aside from some local, you know, town reporters, like nobody has got these stories on, on, on camera. And as you met Fred Counts in the film, who um, 
uh, was Nina's childhood friend, smaller guy. He talked about um, how Nina stood up to segregation and how she just couldn't um, get her mind around it. You know, he passed away in the making of, of this film. So, you know, these this group, this community, these people are aging now. Very few of them are alive for very much longer. So... You know, it was a great gift from Chris to to arrange all these interviews for me, and that really started the filmmaking process. And from there, I came back to New York. I started editing um, this sort of chapter together, which basically became the first chapter of the film. And um, that's when I approached Nina's daughter and Nina's brother, Sam Wayman, um, about my idea for making this film. And I wanted to show them something. I wanted to show them re-emerging, but I also wanted to show them the first, you know, 10 minutes sample of what the film could look like. And um, Nina's daughter and I had some good conversations and um, we talked about, you know, the ideas for the film. And at the tail end of the film, when you have some text and you're explaining what happened after you were done with the film, I thought that there was a paragraph that said that Nina Simone's daughter had not responded. Am I am I wrong? She, am I missing something? What happened is a little bit of a mystery to me. Um, the only thing I know is that the next thing I know that she was making her own documentary. And Oh, is that the Netflix film? And that's a Netflix film. So, you know, in um in her defense, I could say that, you know, maybe she thought like who was I? I'm this young filmmaker with only one actual feature film under my belt, even though I've been producing for, for, you know, a good decade before that. Um, And maybe she thought, you know, if she took it to Spike Lee, that he would like, you know, take it and and they would, you know, get on HBO and it would be like a much bigger thing. Um, I don't know. I none of that was very clear to me. All of all I knew was that suddenly like my idea was sort of now being taken elsewhere. Um she might not have been responsive, but Nina's brother was. Yes. Yes. And he, you know, he was also equally um careful or suspicious or, you know, wanted to really, like, know who I was, what my agenda was, where I was coming from, why Nina, you know, the same questions that everyone basically has. And um, Sam uh, was in Nina's band for a long time, as you learned in the film, and he was her brother, and he lived with her and had quite a close relationship with her. Sam lives just outside of New York uh, in Nyack in um Rockland County. And he said, I want you to come up to Nyack. I want to look in your eyes and I want to see what your intentions are. And I said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. And we spent about an hour on the phone that first time we talked. And then we met and uh, immediately we sort of like saw eye to eye on, on things and he could he liked my vision. I liked um, what he had to say. I liked the freedom he gave me. Um, 
you know, Nina's story is, is as, as you saw, there's some, you know, sad and troubling and concerning moments in the film. And um, he wanted to be extremely truthful about everything. And he was very truthful, much more so, very much more forthcoming than I um, anticipated. And so I was very glad to, to work with him. And to be honest, I don't know how anyone could have told Nina's story without him. And the other two films that have told Nina's story without Sam sort of seem very um, like something's missing. So, um, you know, with Sam's Sam's sort of um, blessing, the, the film really moved forward. And because I knew I was in competition, I also suddenly was like, okay, there's no like taking a nice sweet time anymore. And that really pushed me forward, which was a good thing. What has the reaction been? The reaction's been really, really nice. Like people, A, realize that there was so much of Nina's story that they didn't know. Um, they feel compassion for her in a way that they didn't previously seem to feel. Um, there was this always this idea that like, oh, Nina Simone is crazy. You know, like, and it, that to me is like such a dismissive um, reaction. Like, she's crazy, she'll do things, yana, yana, you just have to sort of, like, bear with it. And, no, I mean, she suffered from a mental illness that we discuss in the film, so some of her behavior is um, due to that. She was also somebody that demanded respect, and she wasn't going to just tolerate um, people disrespecting her as an artist, as a black woman, as a woman, um, as, as a singer, as a protest singer. Um, she really demanded respect. And you see in the film and in these early articles in um, the beginning in the 60s that, you know, if you didn't um, give her the, the due that she wanted, the silence and the listening and the... Um, the time as an artist to really take in her lyrics and her piano playing, she would leave because, you know, why, why am I here otherwise? So I think people are sort of seeing um, if they had gone to a concert and experienced what they thought might have been crazy, they're now sort of seeing it in a new light. And that to me was really important. How did the Hollywood Reporter article come up? I had been following developments with the biopic Nina. Why are they calling it a biopic as opposed to a feature film? I think biopic is sort of this term that's given to like biography, feature film biographies, like the true story of an artist like Ray or, you know, Walk the Line, Johnny Cash's film. You know, that's sort of the term as opposed to a documentary or something like that. The biopics um, poster and trailer came out a few weeks ago and you know, we had seen images of Zoe Saldana dressed up as Nina before from from when the film was shooting. And suddenly now we were seeing the trailer and the poster and like the flurry sort of um, got going all over again. And um, I was I was sort of watching things develop as people got angry about the images that they were seeing. And um, Robert Johnson, who's the founder of BET, and who picked up the film at Cannes, um, started saying that the sort of outcry um, that people were 
were giving was, you know, black people uh, against black people and specifically dark skin uh, black people sort of criticizing this light skin actress Zoe Saldana, who's of um, Latina and, and black um, heritage. And that's when I sort of like lost it. <laughs> I was like, already this poster and this trailer are offensive to me. Like the first images I'm seeing of Nina in this film are of her sh- throwing champagne bottles, drinking in bed, you know, drugging, being strapped down to um, a mental hospital bed. I'm already like, you know, livid that like this is the way they choose to represent Nina and then for him to sort of like make this distraction that is black people against black people was too much for me so that's when I wrote to the Hollywood reporter who had published his comments and said you know this is why I think Robert Johnson is wrong and offensive and um, I thought they might quote from the paragraph that I had written and they said or three paragraphs I had written and they said we had uh, thank you for this. We'd like to publish all, all of what you wrote. And I said, yes, please feel free. And um, I actually was like, you know what, let me expand on it too and clarify it a bit more. And so I wrote this longer essay that they published that got picked up um, immediately by BET, um, which was so strange because he was the founder of BET, but I guess he's no longer affiliated. And BET was also sort of been following the controversy and The Root and People.com and all these websites just picked up on the story, which was um, interesting to see, you know, the the, the controversy sort of get placed in um, uh, an intellectual perspective as well. It's not just about Zoe's skin color, but it's also about the blackface makeup and the prosthetics and the storyline, which I felt like people were really ignoring and, you know, as I told you, I'd read the script and there were so many inaccuracies and dramatizations and making characters something they're not that I really felt like that needed to be said. There have been strong reactions on both sides of the story. Since you published the article, have you heard from the director of the biopic? No. No, I haven't heard from anyone from from that side. And, you know, I'm not sure if they think I'm, you know, just trying to ride their coattails or, uh, you know, trying to publicize my own film, or if they think, you know, the more publicity for the topic, the better. Um, I don't really know where they're coming from. Um, But that's cool by me. Will you see it? No, no, I will be with the group of people who will be boycotting the film. Um, There's a group organizing in Central Park on um, April 22nd, uh, having a Nina Simone listening party, and they're going to be listening, and I'm going to be listening to the real Nina Simone. And, um, you know, as I said, I wanted to make my film available for people as an alternative to this project and the film my film the amazing nina simone came out in october it's been in in theaters pretty much ever since suddenly there's this wave of interest to bring the film back to several cities um during april and so when the biopic um comes out i will be at um screenings of the amazing nina simone and um 
I really feel glad that like I have so many cities on board who want to show the film and, and really offer this true perspective because I'm not the only one who's upset and irritated that this is the way that Nina Simone is trying to be remembered. And um, there's about 15 cities so far that are going to show the film in April. Congratulations. Thank you. Jeff, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for your time. The amazing Nina Simone, go see it. And we look forward to your future documentaries and other films and other projects. Thank you for being here. Thank you. AmazingNina.com is the website for anyone who wants to see where the film is playing. This is Jessica Lips with Lips on Life. Thank you for listening.